Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 2, What Did It Mean to Be a Medieval Queen? What did it mean to be a queen in medieval England? This seems at first to be a really easy question to answer. You had to marry a king. Simple, right? But when you dig a little deeper, this turns out to be a very superficial answer, because it doesn't really answer the fundamental aspect of the question. Now, I could go on about this for hours, and this could very easily get away from me quickly. The perils of being a history geek, I guess. In the interest of time, though, and your sanity, I'll present a framework of what it meant to be a medieval queen. At a very basic level, there are two kinds of queen that we understand today, queen's regnant and queen's consort. A queen regnant is a queen who rules the kingdom. She gains her title from inheriting the throne by birth after the death of relative. An example of this is the current British queen, Elizabeth II. She gained the throne by virtue of being the eldest child of the previous ruler, George VI. Since he had no sons, the throne passed to her on his death. A queen consort is a woman who has the title of queen, but only attained this upon marrying the king. She may take on roles and responsibilities related to running the kingdom, but she does not rule. A good way of thinking of this is the First Lady of the United States. The First Lady is not an elected position, and her position is not infused with any direct political power. If it were not for the fact that she was married to the President, she would have no power at all. In the Middle Ages, we only had Queen's Consort in England, although there were about six months where the Empress Matilda did rule during the period known as the Anarchy in the 12th century, but more on that later. The days of Mary and Elizabeth Tudor, of Queen Anne and Victoria, are a long ways off. So, for the purposes of the period that we are covering, the title of Queen is understood to mean the wife of the king. This distinction between regnant and consort meant nothing to the people of the Middle Ages. On the occasion that there were women rulers, they were often referred to as something else, and thought of as being more like female kings than queens. Supporters of the Empress Matilda during her brief period in power in England, for example, referred to her as Domina, or Lady, rather than Regina, the Latin word for Queen. So, 
what did a medieval queen actually do? Well, like we'll see, a lot depended on the personalities of the king and queen in question, and the political position of the kingdom. The best place to find out what was expected of a queen is from the primary source material, from things written by people at the time. Writing in the 9th century, the scholar Sedulius wrote to the Frankish king Charles the Bald, saying that a queen should be, quote, noble, beautiful and rich, but also chaste, prudent and compliant in holy virtues. He also provides a warning, stating that her marriage to the king, quote, makes her have the more influence for ill. The Exeter book, which was a sort of great anthology of Anglo-Saxon poetry written a century later, expanded on this, saying that she, quote, must be pre-eminently liberal with gifts, be cherished among her people, and be buoyant of mood, keep confidences, be open-heartedly generous with horses and with treasures, know what is prudent for her and her husband as rulers of the hall. If that weren't enough, they were also expected to temper the excesses of their husbands. Kings were expected to be macho warriors, defenders of the realm, and their wives were supposed to ground them and show the softer side of royal power. This was particularly relevant in relation to the poor, to whom the queen was expected to act as patron, as their voice at court. As part of this, they were supposed to be generous to the church. It cannot be overstated just how important the church was to life in the Middle Ages. It was the centre of everything, the guardian to the immortal souls of everyone in Christendom. Piety was considered the best way for queens to demonstrate their virtue. Kings were expected to spend their time and money on fighting wars, whereas queens were supposed to spend their money and time on charity and the church. The most religious queens were often conspicuously linked to biblical figures such as Esther and the Virgin Mary, and this not only helped their reputations for piety, but also opened up contacts with leading churchmen, the archbishop and popes of the day, and in the superstitious world of medieval England, this could give them tremendous influence and open up back channels for the king to use should he wish. This reputation for being a good Christian would reflect well not only on the queen, but also on the king and the kingdom as a whole. So it's no surprise that on the rare occasions that queens do appear in the sources, it is often in the context of giving alms to the poor or founding some monastery or church. Yet all these things were secondary to the most important thing that the queen was supposed to do. In fact, it is fair to say that really, queens only had one nailed-on constitutional role. Babies. Lots and lots of bouncing baby boys. Nothing could make or break the reputation and power of a queen than her ability, or inability, to give birth to heirs. Male heirs were very much preferred, as only they were considered to have the ability to lead men into battle and defend the kingdom, still considered the most important aspect of kingship. Famously, of course, Henry VIII went through three wives before he managed to get the son he wanted, but there are many examples of kings who viewed siring a male heir as a sort of prime imperative, and it is easy to see why. If you look at the great English civil wars of the Middle Ages, from the anarchy of the 12th century to the Wars of the Roses, a key reason behind all of them was a disputed succession, because the previous king had not left behind a son. Once they had produced all those babies, it was then their role to raise them. 
Of course, the royal couple would employ a whole household of staff to help them, but it was considered the mother's duty to take charge of the child's well-being. The king was just way too busy fighting wars and raising money to fight those wars to bother with changing nappies and what have you. The influence that the mother could have over her children was a good way for a queen to accumulate more power. A great example of this is Anna of Aquitaine, who with her children raised rebellion against her husband Henry II and nearly brought the kingdom to its knees in the mid-12th century. So, how did a king choose the woman who would become his queen? Well, he could hardly go on some sort of medieval tinder, and indeed royal marriages were never about love or even necessarily mutual attraction. Noble marriages were all about mutual benefit, not love. Marriage was considered the best way to cement alliances and friendships. Treaties written on pieces of paper could be easily cast aside, but marital ties and familial bonds were for life. If you were a relatively minor European power, like England was for much of the Middle Ages, then you could find a foreign bride from one of the great royal houses of Europe. Their honour and power would reflect well upon you, and on your children might even have claims to multiple kingdoms, raising the possibility of perhaps grabbing foreign titles for your family in the future. If you had been at war and wanted to cement some sort of peace, then marrying into the family of your former foe was also considered a good way to do that. We've already mentioned Elizabeth of York and Henry Tudor, but there was also Henry V marrying the daughter of the King of France after his crushing victory at Agincourt. If you were a relative upstart or even a usurper, then it would be a good idea to marry someone with very rich and deep noble blood, such as with Henry I's marriage to Matilda of Scotland. As we will see in episode 4, Henry came into the throne in disputed circumstances as part of a hated foreign dynasty, so marrying a bride of Anglo-Saxon lineage was a good way of painting himself as a man who would be a king for all his people, not just his Norman nobility. So, were there royal marriages for love? It seems clear that certainly some kings did love their wives, and demonstrated true affection for them. The only king to have personally chosen his wife for love, though, was Edward IV, a king in the 15th century, who married a commoner, Elizabeth Woodville, best known as the subject of Philippa Gregory's book, The White Queen. The very fact that this is the only example in the 400 years between Hastings and Bosworth tells you just how rare this was in the medieval world. Love may have blossomed between a couple after they were wed, but that was really just luck of the draw, and moreover, quite beside the point. So, these are all the positive reasons for a king to marry, but were there any negatives? The short answer is, not really. Queens were invested with so little power that there was really only so much that they could do to interfere with the affairs of their husbands. There were, of course, a few exceptions to this. I've already mentioned Eleanor of Aquitaine, but there's also Isabella of France, who helped to depose her husband, Edward II. But these examples are few and far between, and this is shown by the relative rarity of bachelor kings. In the period between 1066 and 1509, only one king, unless you count Edward V, who died in the tower at the age of 13, went his entire reign without a wife, and that was William Rufus. For the rest of them, taking a wife, if they didn't already have one, 
was one of the first acts of a new king, and if their wife was to die, it was expected that they should take another. Kings were supposed to rule, but equally they were supposed to have a loyal wife by their side at pretty much all times. The last thing I'm going to talk about today is this. How much power could a queen wield? Now this is going to be a central theme of this show and I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the central point is this. A queen could exert tremendous influence, but only in so much as her husband allowed. Some queens rule parts of the husband's kingdoms, even their entire kingdoms for short periods, but only at their behest. Some indeed held courts and effectively governed for many years. Yet, for the most part, their power depended on their ability to use the powers that women were allowed to use. This was a deeply, deeply patriarchal world, and women were not supposed to worry their pretty little heads with the business of war, politics, and governance. Their power lay in their ability to take the things that they were allowed to do and use them to their fullest advantage. By being the voice of the people, of the poor and the pious, by giving birth to a whole brood of boys and raising them to be fine men, by keeping correspondence with their families abroad, should they be foreign, and by keeping the trust of their husbands, queens could become very powerful indeed, but it was almost always within the rules of the game, of the man's game, of the king's game. In the next episode, we shall dive into talking about England's first post-conquest queen, Matilda of Flanders, a woman who emerged from the turmoil of Hastings as a popular and powerful figure, but who was torn apart by the warring between her sons and her husband. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.